Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Diana Reid to Books, Books, Books to talk about her debut novel, Love and Virtue, published by Ultimo Press. It touches on thorny issues to do with sex, consent, power, privilege and class, and everyone is talking about it. Let me tell you a little bit about Diana before we start. Diana is a Sydney-based writer who graduated from the University of Sydney last year with a Bachelor of Arts, First Class Honours in Philosophy and Laws. In January last year, the musical that she co-wrote, 1984, the musical, debuted with a critically acclaimed sold-out season at New Theatre Newtown. Diana deferred her job as a lawyer and was all set to become a playwright, planning to use her gap year going to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, amongst other things, and then COVID struck. So instead, she decided to write a novel, and five months later, out of lockdown came Love and Virtue. It has received rave reviews. Meg Mason, who's been a guest on this show for her book to talk about her book, Sorrow and Bliss, has said this. By the end of this real, raw and startling novel, you know Reid is the talent to whom every smart young novelist who follows her will be compared or hope to be. Fiona Wright said this in the Saturday paper. The great strength of Reid's novel is the complexity with which it examines the ideas of power, agency, violence and trust that are at its heart. And last but not least, Helen Garner, who's also been a guest on this show and will be again in a few weeks' time, has had this to say about it. An absolute cracker. Love and virtue lobs right into the current moment with a clarifying light. I hope everyone reads this book. Diana, congratulations on those wonderful reviews and comments and welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much. You, it's a good thing it's a podcast because I'm blushing, so you can't say it. <laughs> I would like you to start by telling us what is Love and Virtue about, and then I'm going to ask you to read a short extract from it. Great. So Love and Virtue is an Australian campus novel, and it looks at sex, power, and consent through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women in their first year at university. Would you like to now read a short extract? Yeah, so I'm reading from Chapter 1 of Love and Virtue. Although it has been years since Eve and I were friends, I despair that I will ever shake her. This is because she has been selfish enough to take up a place, however minor, in public life. No matter how exhaustively I block her on social media and distance myself from her friends and avoid talking about her with mine, she refuses to live malleably in my memory. Instead, she crops up in bookshop windows on the Explore function on my Instagram, profiled for the weekend paper. In photos, she looks radiantly intelligent. It's her cheekbones, as I always told her, high, prominent cheekbones that assert themselves like convictions. In these photos, the kinds of photos that also appear on the jackets of her books, her face is engaged and alert, but basically passive, like the photographer caught her when she was not quite thinking, just letting clever ideas rest in her brain. 
Whenever I say I was at university with Eve, people ask me what she was like, sceptical perhaps that she could have always been as whole and self-assured as she now appears, to which I say something like, people are infinitely complex, but I say it in such a way, so pregnant with misanthropy, that it's obvious I hate her. It's a big claim, I know, to hate a person. What would Eve say? She'd be methodical as always, starting with the universal and then moving to the particular. She'd ask, what does it mean to hate? I hear her voice in my head bouncing the idea around. I can't hate someone unless I know them intimately, she tells me. Hate is very personal. It requires care. A thought experiment. Eve, angular face and pliant hair, crosses a road. I choose a place I know to make it as vivid as possible. The road is King Street, Newtown. Eve crosses where there's no intersection, talking to me over her shoulder as she goes. Looking at me, she doesn't see the oncoming traffic. With a thud so flat it sounds fake, she rolls up onto a car's windscreen. To my surprise, the windscreen doesn't shatter. The car, breaking on impact, swerves and the passenger side hits a street lamp. Eve rolls, limp, back onto the bitumen. I imagine this taking place in summer, so the bitumen is hot and the smoke from the car feels like it emanates from the earth. There's crunchy glass everywhere, and as I approach, I see it smattered across her pale chest like breadcrumbs. How do I feel when I see her face, that equilateral triangle of nose and chin and cheekbones, blood-specked and ravaged? How does that make me feel? Amid the heat and the rubbery smoke and the sirens, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't feel the tiniest flash of glee. That I still feel so much, that her suffering thrills me and her success cruels me, that I cannot just get over it, but insist instead on resenting her. It all suggests to me that, in spite of everything, I'm still a little bit in love with her. Terrific. I think that sets the scene very nicely. We'll be moving very shortly to talk about that friendship, which is at the core of the book. But before we do, just a few introductory questions. This is your first novel. What made you choose this as your subject matter? Is it something that you've long wanted to write about? I think it was sort of a combination of personal and artistic factors. So uh, the answer to your question is I hadn't long thought about writing a novel, to be honest. It was something I'd had in the back of my head as like something that would be nice to do before I died kind of thing. But um, it wasn't until lockdown and as you explained at the start that I sort of sat down and tried to actually apply myself to writing one. Um, So the reason I chose a campus novel was firstly from an artistic perspective, I just really like reading campus novels. So the Sally Rooney books, books like The Secret History, Brideshead Revisited, um, those kind of coming of age novels that take place in an academic environment um, are a genre that I've always loved. And I'd noticed that there wasn't really a major Australian contribution to that genre. Um, And then the second reason, which is related, is that I had just spent six years at university. So it was a um, I guess, a setting and, an, and a culture that was super familiar to me. Um, so, yeah, when I sat down to write a book, I thought, oh, well, that seems like an obvious kind of gap to fill. I'll, I'll write the Australian University book. And you were at a residential college at Sydney Uni, weren't you? I was for two years, yeah. So um, it was not, um, to be honest, it wasn't like a major factor of my university experience, but it was definitely something that I could speak to um, from experience when I wrote the book. Novelistically, like residential colleges are great because you just have everyone in the same place. So it's like really easy to generate drama. Let's talk now about Eve and Michaela, the two main protagonists. Their friendship and its unravelling are at the heart of the story. And we're not giving anything away, given that you've just read that first scene in which Michaela envisions with glee uh, Eve being splattered <laughs> across the front of a car. 
let's start <laughs> by talking about Michaela. And I should start by saying I am going to be very careful in this conversation for us not to have any spoilers. So there's a lot of things we won't be talking about, and that's because right. readers and listeners, I want you to find those things for yourself and uh, not to have had the story spoiled in any way. Cool. So let's start by talking about Michaela. What do we know about her, Diana? So Michaela is a narrator, and um, despite the passage that I just read, I think she is a really nice person. <laughs> I think she tries to be a nice person, um, and the striving is half the battle. Um, and she is a scholarship student from um, a, she's the only child of a single mum who lives in Canberra, and she's coming to Sydney for the first time to go to university, and she's got this full scholarship to a residential college, so she doesn't need to work while she's at uni. Um, and she's got somewhere that she can live for free. And she is very intelligent. And I think perhaps, I think she's one of those young people for whom her intellect probably outstrips her emotional maturity. And that's something that she kind of grapples with throughout the course of the book because she understands everything around her, but takes longer to understand herself and her vulnerability. Tell us a little bit about Eve then. What What is she like? What's she like as a personality? What do we know about her background? So Eve is from, so Eve is less of an outsider. So Eve is from Sydney and she went to a private school. So when she gets to college, she already knows a lot of the people there who are also from Sydney private schools. Um, and she has the kind of confidence that comes with, with that insider status. And that also um, means that she has the confidence to criticise these institutions. Um, she also is on a scholarship like Michaela, but in her case, it's not uh, out of financial necessity. She's just very clever um, and she's also beautiful and she is very, um, I guess the sort of modern term for it would be she's a bit of a virtue signaler. So it's very important to her identity that people perceive her as being a good person um, and she gets a lot of social capital from talking about ethics and I guess judging other people on the way that they behave. <laughs> And she and Michaela meet in the early days because their rooms are next to each other at the college. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how their friendship develops. And something that, that I noted, I'm sure you'll talk about, is that it's a bit like a seduction, really. Eve says various things to Michaela along the way that are almost a bit what you'd expect somebody seducing another person to say. Um, she tells Michaela she's the first cool person that she's met at Fairfax. And then at one stage she says, I'm obsessed with you. So how does the friendship develop? So I think like um, a lot of female friendships, it kind of the engine of it is this mutual admiration and competition. So um, Michaela, Michaela sees, Eve, sees Eve as someone who's so sure of herself and like she says in the prologue, she sort of sees her as fully formed. And Michaela's only 18 and she, while being very clever, doesn't really know who she is yet. So she kind of latches onto Eve. So, yeah, they at one point in the book she says, I was 18 and she was 20, which at the time meant that she, I was a teenager and she was an adult. So that was a big difference. Um, and I think obviously two years is doesn't really mean anything, but I do think in your first year of uni the difference between being out of school for three months or out of school for two years is actually quite large. Um Anyway, yeah, so Eve is um, older, she's more sure of herself, and Michaela looks at her and thinks, you're exactly the kind of person I would like to be. Um, and then I think Eve flatters herself at what she is, um, she, but she certainly um, brands herself as being very intelligent and discerning. And so when she um, she kind of selects Michaela as a friend, as her only friend in this in college environment, which she perceives as toxic, so it's like she picks Michaela as 
oh, you're one of the good ones. You can you can play with me. <laughs> so Michaela makes friends with other girls as well who, who as you sort of say, Eve distanced herself from. Her, her friends are the main ones, are Emily, Claudia and Portia. All of them come from very privileged backgrounds. We hear about them heading off to Europe in summer, the European summer. We hear, hear them here off to ski in the Alps over um, our summer. We see their parents' homes at Palm Beach, Harborside uh, mansions. And the way that she meets the first of these girls, I think, is standing in a queue to get a drink at one of the college functions. And Michaela says, I didn't question whether these were really my people. What are they like? these friendships that form at university? How significant are they for later life? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that what Michaela experiences is probably what a lot of people go through at university, which is that initially they are just friendships of coincidence. So you've washed up often in a kind of foreign place and they're quite a closed environment. And then you share these really formative experiences with just whoever else happens to be there at the time. And I think that as you grow up, sometimes you have that kind of teasing out process where you realize which ones you would choose to be friends with if you in fact had a choice and which ones maybe they would it was just because they happened to be there um and I think with Michaela she has a mix of that with those three girls that you just mentioned um and they do they do genuinely provide a lot of support for each other during that time but it's sort of implied that they don't have as much in common perhaps as she does with Eve so I think that when she's when she's with those girls, um, she's sort of conforming more to, um, I guess, what the general um, social kind of mores of the college is. But then when she's with Eve, I think she feels this kind of relief that she can express herself more fully and say whatever she wants. And she and Eve are both doing arts degrees, then they're both majoring in philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. All right, let's cut to now the really significant thing that you write about and that's the rivalry between them Mm. at the heart of the relationship between Eve and Michaela there's a very deep rivalry and it's summed up by a great line you've got near the end where Michaela says to her mother at graduation it's not enough to succeed others must fail I can't claim that that's actually Gore Vidal yes yes so um yes I I never thought that I came up with that just in case anyone's going to accuse me of plagiarism no Um, but yeah, I think it, it does sum it up very well. Um, it's such a great, it's, it's an aphorism, isn't it? It's such a great line um, because it does sum up, I guess, any rivalry, which is that I think rivalries have this kind of paradox where they are grounded in mutual respect because you wouldn't be a rival with someone unless you wanted to be like them or you thought that they were setting a worthy standard. But then also in order to, win or the conflict of the rivalry depends on tearing this person down so yeah that their friendship kind of has this drama to it where on the one hand they're they're always pushing each other to be better but then on the other hand they do try and pull each other down that I think Gorvidal I don't know if he said it at the same time but isn't he also said didn't he um every time a friend succeeds a little part of me dies so (laughs) in this case we've got Eve and Michaela who are both doing philosophy and that's what you did. You majored in philosophy and I've seen you say that that was a very male-dominated arena. All of the the old philosophers studied are male and the response to that is an intense rivalry, as you say, between Eve and Michaela. And we see that right from the start. In the early days, they get papers back and Eve, I think, has got 90 and Michaela's got 63 and Eve can't help but be quite triumphant and gloaty. And oddly enough, Michaela says, 
I was comforted to think of myself as Eve's opponent. Why did she say that? Well, yeah, I guess I think it's what I was saying before about a rivalry sort of suggests that there's a mutual respect there. Like I think the fact that Eve cares about how Michaela's progressing suggests that she does perceive her as a threat. And I think that if she, I suppose if she thought that Michaela was just an idiot, um, it wouldn't it wouldn't make her feel more triumphant to think that she'd beat her. Like they're sort of the standard that they set each other against. Um, and as you say, I do think the fact that they're working in a male-dominated environment is relevant because I am sympathetic to the fact that obviously environments that um, sort of exclude or oppress minorities can generate that kind of, well, in this case, being women, it's internalised misogyny. Um, that they are sort of forced to perceive other women as threats because they feel like space for them is limited. Um, so I do think that while the rivalry is very personal and it does feed off mutual respect, it also probably has a broader social context around it. You made that point. I see that you've said in another interview, they don't compete, Michaela and Eve don't compete with the boys academically, but they compete with each other. And mm. you say that that is specifically because that the space for women in that particular field in philosophy is limited is that is that what produces that rivalry between them well yeah it's interesting isn't it because I'm sure that that's a factor but then I also think that um another factor is that they are both ambitious and um you know I think I said in another interview that like it's not a story of two girls who go to uni and compete for male attention because they both want to get a boyfriend like they're both very ambitious for themselves and they want to get good marks um, because they're smart and that matters to them. So I think that, yes, being in a male-dominated environment matters, but also I think any environment where people take themselves seriously is probably going to lead to rivalries and taking yourself seriously is like a privilege that's only afforded to people who feel like they have power or they have potential. So, yeah, I don't know is the answer. Like, Yes, they're oppressed, but also they're empowered. <laughs> I want to come back to what you said about male attention. You said they don't compete for male attention, but I don't think that's quite right. They do no, that's compete <laughs> for that a little bit. We have one point in the book. I'm not going to disclose the identity, but um, Michaela can't wait to tell um, Eve that she slept with somebody, a particular person, because she wants to make her envious that that person has chosen her rather than Eve. And we've got Michaela thinking she knows it was degrading to compete with another woman for male attention, but this doesn't dull the feeling that she's won. And you have said somewhere else that a classic symptom of internalised misogyny is to perceive other women as threats. Could you talk a little bit about that? So I think that what Michaela experiences and what Eve um, at one point in the book rightly sort of accuses her of is um, internalised misogyny, which means that she's... Um, internalized patriarchal narratives and she uses them as the standard by which she measures herself so for example she thinks that attention from if she she thinks that men are powerful and particularly in this academic context that men are the arbiters of who is and isn't intelligent so therefore if she gets attention whether it be like sexual or um, academic from a man that sort of proves that she's worthy and that she's smart um, and yeah, so I think that um, her internalized misogyny sort of manifests in the way that she kind of outsources her value to patriarchal institutions and structures. Let's talk now about the college, which is called St. Thomas's College in your book. Tell us a bit about that college and the boys that go there, young men. It's a male only college. Yeah, so there's a pair of um, 
there's a pair of single sex colleges in the book. Um, the the all female one's called Fairfax, and the all male one is called St Thomas. Um, and the boys who go to St Thomas are a similar profile to the women who go to Fairfax. Who you were describing earlier as Michaela's friends, in that the majority of them went to Sydney private schools and all sort of already know each other, and they're all very privileged. And um, like anywhere, there's degrees of um, how much they sort of internalise the college culture and that privilege. And one of Michaela's best friends in, throughout the whole book, who's a, a real rock um, and a very solid and I think quite grounded person, is a boy who goes to that college. But then there's also other boys who are, are, I guess you describe them as more boorish um, and they kind of um, in, engage in this culture of public shaming and... Um, yeah, I think um, without sort of making excuses for anybody in the book, I think that what I was trying to demonstrate there was that when people are 18 and they are very young, I think that it takes a special type of emotional maturity to like resist the influences of your peers. And I think that some of the people in the book are less immune to those influences than others. Mm. I mean, you give us pretty unsparing descriptions. I'm not going to go through them of the poor behaviour of these young men in particular in relation to the degradations to which they subject the women who are supposedly their friends. Mm. We've we've read a lot about this sort of poor behaviour in the press, especially following um, Elizabeth Broderick's report in 2018. And near the end of your book, Michaela says this, when you take so many privileged people and you insulate them from outside influences, it's no surprise they end up in this bubble that's super sexist and racist and classist. I'd like to ask you about the last one of those, about class, which is a recurring theme in your book. Um, as we've said, all of these young people, with the exception of Michaela, um, are highly privileged. And at one point, Michaela and Eva are talking about the culture at St Thomas and Michaela agrees that it's toxic and she says, yes, it's also incredibly stratified in terms of class. So my question to you is what role do you think class plays in some of the problems that arise in these elite educational institutions and residential colleges? Yeah, I think that to me, I think that it's just about a um, lack of empathy and awareness because I think that often, especially when you're very young, I think what it can take for you to recognise your privilege is, isn't is someone overtly telling you that you need to recognise it, but it's just being exposed to people and having genuine relationships with people who are of different backgrounds. Um, and it's a shame that that's what it takes and it would be nice if we could just say, wake up. Um, but I just don't think that that's how people mature and I don't think that that's how it works. And I think that for people who go, um, who grow up in a particular bubble, university is like a great time for them to leave that bubble and realise um, how other people live relatively to them. Um, and I think that if you, if that bubble is like protected by institutions like colleges, it kind of, in some instances, can deprive people of the opportunity to I guess, recognise how just how different other people are from them. You use humour very effectively to make some of your points and I just have to take take a couple of examples just for the sheer joy of listeners. You need to read the whole book to get all of them, but I picked a couple of my favourites. One example, talking about a character, Portia, you say, owing to her particular combination of beauty and stupidity, she was the perfect woman in the eyes of the St Thomas boys. There was another one that I really liked where Michaela's describing the female bathroom at the college, which you say is predictably tiny, like every cubic centimetre was a reluctant concession. How important was it to you, Diana, to use humour 
to offset some of the very important points you were making about class and privilege and elitism. Thank you so much for asking me this, Nicole, because um, the book does deal with some very heavy themes and I do feel like often I talk about it and I kind of opine about um, sexism and classism as if like I have these really well-formed views. Um, and I did want the book to be funny. Yeah, I think it can sound like a hard slog sometimes the way I talk about it. But yeah, it, um, it was very important to me. Um, it was important just like as a kind of, I guess, artistic point. Um, I just think that I like reading things that are funny. And um, when I was at uni, my kind of only experience with creative writing was writing sketch. So I think I just try to, that's how I write. So I think I just sort of, just for myself, I think that if I've written a scene and it does nothing else except like is funny, then that's okay. That's a good scene. Um, others might disagree, but that's certainly how I approach writing. And I um, I also think that I guess on a more kind of uh, a sort of self-serious perspective, I think that humor is really important because I think that it is a sort of non-accusatory way to make people recognize their um their flaws and it sort of doesn't feel like an attack it sort of invites people to laugh in an inclusive way and as you pointed out like I went to a residential college so I certainly am not accusing anyone in this book of doing things that I didn't either do or put up with when I was 18 it's just that you know it's nice to be able to laugh about it now and I think there's a bit at the very end of the book I, I think it's the last sentence of the um, last chapter before the epilogue and Michaela says to her mother um, oh she says we laughed but if it was funny it was only because we knew it to be true and that's like my my thesis on why humor is important and that's because if you laugh then you're acknowledging that there's a truth there. One of the questions I had for you is um, what do you think it will take for there to be cultural change at institutions like this and then as I was thinking about that couldn't help but notice that a few weeks ago in late October, St Paul's College at Sydney University decided to open the doors to undergraduate women. They already had some postgrads from 2023. And I gather that was, um, I'm not giving any secrets away here, it was in the press, over strong opposition from a number of the students, alumni, and even from some of the women from uh, Women's College. I was wondering what your opinion was about whether making that particular uh, all, up until now, all male residential college um, co-ed, whether that would help to bring cultural and institutional change? I think that it can only help. And I think that just goes to what we were saying before of what Michaela says when she says, um, you know, if you if you take people who are all of a similar background and you insulate them from outside influences, then like sort of what hope do they have of um, of ever growing or changing their perspective? And I know that obviously People have access to far greater resources now and they have access to, you know, the internet and we should say, well, there's no excuse like for you not to be woke essentially. You've got all these resources at your disposal. Um, and I I am very sympathetic to that point and so I'm not saying that these people are excused for not being woke. I just think as like a social fact, people are more influenced by, than anything at that very young age by their peers. And so if their peers aren't reading these things or telling them to look at them, then um, have then it's unlikely that they'll really embrace whatever resources they may have at their disposal. So, yeah, I just think that diversity can only be a good thing insofar as it encourages people to engage with different perspectives other than their own. I can't help but ask you this. I was wondering if some of your or any, you said that some of your first readers were male and I wondered if that included any male friends who had been at colleges or a college 
like St Thomas. I wondered if any of those had read the manuscript and if so, or the book by now, and if so, what they thought about it. Yeah, absolutely. They have. And um, one of my, of my first, of my first two readers, one of them was a boy who was at a residential college. Um, and I just, yeah, I think like anywhere. And I think that that full range is represented in the book from the, like from Balthazar, who's sort of a very good, gentle figure to Sackers, who's a, who's a bore. Um, I think that in all institutions, there are obviously ranges of people. And I think that while institutions can be really formative, they don't have to define you. And um, like, I would hate for anyone to to read this book or listen to this interview and think that I'm painting every single person who goes to a particular institution with the same brush. That's not anything that I have any interest in doing. Um, yes. Yeah, so I do have friends who I, I've had a range of reactions. I've had some, I've had very, very good friends who I, whose opinions I respect very much read it and they love it and they laugh. It's and this true. is male friends as well as women male friends. friends. Yeah. Yeah. They just find it funny. And, um, you know, they, they've said that it's a nice book. Maybe they say otherwise behind my back, but to my face, they've been very effusive. Um, but then I've also had um, people who I know less well kind of panic about whether they're in the book, which I find very amusing because I think that if you've just read the blurb and you're panicking, maybe maybe that's an issue for you and your conscience, you know, <laughs> like maybe you have something to panic about. I'd like to talk now about the issue of sex and consent. Mm-hmm. Without naming names, Tell us what happens in the opening scene of the novel. Um, well, yeah, the opening scene also doesn't name any names. So um, a so the, the prologue describes a sexual encounter between a boy and a girl. Both are very drunk um, and they have sex and the girl is so drunk that um, they have to stop the intercourse to um, sorry I I feel it sounds so smutty um the rest of the book isn't like this it, no, it opens not. graphically um they have to stop but intercourse with so a real girl, ring of authenticity I think for most people who read it or certainly any that have been to college yeah um so they, they have to they, he pulls out and the girl vomits in his bin and um she's naked and he covers her in his academic gown and then she kind of like limps out um and then the question and then that incident is explored through lots of different perspectives throughout the course of the book i don't want there to be any spoilers either so i'm just going to ask you a few things in general terms right we do learn i'm not going to mention who the man was we do learn later in the book that the woman was michaela and eve her friend tells her that she should report it that if Mm -hmm. she was that drunk there should be no consent and that if she she should be telling her story because she could make it a catalyst for change Mm -hmm. How does Michaela respond to that? Why doesn't she want to report the perpetrator? So I think Michaela's um, feelings are complex and, as always, especially when you're young, I think they're very influenced by people around her. So immediately after she, so Michaela doesn't remember the incident and then um, she plays, without giving it too much away, it sort of happens about a third of the way through, she's she's party to a drinking game and then it's revealed during the drinking game that, it was her and who the boy was. And then that kind of jogs her memory. And then the morning after, she's talking about it with a close friend who isn't Eve, who's less, I guess, moralistic and kind of goes with the flow of the colleges a bit more. And then another girl comes into her room and she's crying because she's lost something at a party and everybody kind of treats that with a lot of seriousness and her issue kind of gets swept under the rug. So 
by the time she talks to Eve about it, she's already kind of made this decision that she won't make a fuss. Um, and that's because of the way that her peers treat those kind of incidents as just being kind of par for the course. Like you go out, you get drunk, you hook up and, you know, maybe you don't remember it. Shame, how random. Um, and then, and so that's kind of the narrative that she's taken on. So then by the time Eve talks to her, when Eve says, oh, no, that's rape, it, it conflicts this narrative that she's already formed. Um, and so I guess my challenge to the readers is to pick which narrative rings true to them. Um, and like everyone, I'm sure that'll be informed both by personal experience and also, as was in Michaela's case, by the experiences of people around them. Um, and I think that I think that with Michaela, the question isn't just as simple as like, was it rape? And if it was rape, then therefore I have to do something about it. I think that for Michaela, there's also lots of subsidiary questions about, well, even if it wasn't consensual, does that mean that it's something that I want to be defined by? And does that mean that it's something that I want to live with? And or that he should, or that he should be defined by, or something that he should be defined at. by. And um, she's she's friends with the guy, so then she's like, well, is that something that we need to talk about, just the two of us? Um, you know, maybe it's not something that I necessarily. That's the other factor is that she likes him. Like she she thinks mm. he's a nice guy, mm. um, and so I think she sort of has faith that. If they maybe if they did sit down and talk about it, um, he'd be open to discussing it. Like she doesn't sort of perceive him as a predator from her other experiences with him. So yeah, I think that for her, it's not just a matter of like, um, if I didn't consent, therefore I need to report it and I need to you know make that my narrative. I think that she's sort of wants to leave open the possibility that you know maybe they were too drunk but also maybe the door's ajar for them to just move on. And so I sort of almost hesitate to say that because obviously sexual assault is so harrowing and it is not something that people necessarily can move on from um, and I wouldn't ever for a moment suggest that. I'm just sort of saying that for Michaela, she wants to entertain the possibility that she can. As I was reading this, I was thinking about Helen Garner's book, The First mm. Stone, and then we've mentioned that Helen Garner has given you a beautiful ringing uh, endorsement, it's not even the right word, but she's been very complimentary about your book. Could you tell listeners about um, how you came to make contact with Helen Garner herself and the influence well, that The First Stone has had on your book? Sure. So I'll start with the influence. So um, I read The First Stone in January of 2020 and I was so moved by it. I should say that... Um, I'm of a different, my, my feminism is like of a different generations to Helen Garner's. And so I think that that really informed my reading of the book. And I didn't necessarily agree with her take on um, the historic assault that happened. But what I, what I did agree with and what I admired so much was the kind of project that she was undertaking of saying, well, let's have a discussion about it. And Maybe there are different ways to view it. And I guess that's kind of what I tried to achieve with Love and Virtue. I was going to take you back a step. I think yep. probably most listeners will be familiar with The First Stone, but okay. just in case there's any that aren't, could you just in a couple of sentences tell us about the sort of dilemma at the heart of that book or what, what, yes. what Helen was writing about? Sure. So, yeah, I probably won't do it justice, but um, there was um, two, um, I think they were, oh, there's a distinction, isn't there? I think they were assault claims or har harassment claims made by um, two residents of Ormond College in Melbourne against the head of the college. So there, there were these two claims that were made and um, both of them were, um, I think one was a, were they both broke? 
scoping. Certainly one was. It's been a little while. No, no, that's right. It's been a little while since I've wrote it, but certainly one was an instance of groping and the allegations were get, made against the master of the college who held the purse strings. Yeah. And then, and so then there were the questions arose about um, the, um, about whether the gravity of the assault warranted the, um, the response, which was that he lost his job. And I think it was all quite, it was very public. And he, there was, I think there was an element of sort of public shaming and public disgrace. Yeah, and so, I should say, just in terms of timing, this came out thirty years ago, I think. Yeah, and I sort of, I, I, I think I, I personally disagreed with Helen Garner's take on the gravity of what had happened to these women. I sort of, I think I probably thought it was was graver um, than she did, and I thought that the women were right to pursue it in the way that they did. Um, there are also issues of, I, I understand that there are issues regarding um, because it was a real case and about sort of. Um, the the extent to which things were fictionalized, um, but I sort of can't really comment on that as a fiction writer myself. I'm not really, yeah. I, like aside from, I appreciate that there are debates around that, but I don't feel like I can comment on them. Um, but yes, so I think what I admired so much was that there was this kind of openness to talk about the ethics of a situation, even though it had publicly been kind of decided one way. And so that's what I try to do with Love and Virtue. It like opens with this very murky incident um, and then other people around the people involved spend the rest of the book telling them what it means. Um, and I think that that is something that happens in real life and I think that it does make it very hard to decide what um, what situations mean and I think it's worth acknowledging that they can mean different things to different people and that it's not always black and white. So, yes, so I love the first one. Um, so then, sorry, to finally answer your question. So I wrote Helen Garner a letter after I found out that Love and Virtue was going to be published and it was super sycophantic and I just said basically all the things I've just said to you that I um, didn't agree with all of all of what she said but I agreed with um, the aim and the spirit of it and I thought that it was so brave to think that we could discuss these things um, and that you could put up your hand and say, actually, I think it's more complicated than you're making out. Um, and then... She replied to my letter after she'd read Love and Virtue um, in by hand and um, said that she liked the book. So obviously there was no no greater praise. I cried a lot. <laughs> it was all very surreal. That's just such a fantastic story. It made me so happy to hear it. All right, <laughs> let's move now to questions of morality and what you've just touched on really. You have, I know, a first-class honours degree in philosophy and you've talked about that and you've said, which I thought was really interesting, that when you first started philosophy, you'd go into every subject, I'll paraphrase now, but being very mm. sure of what was right or wrong. But you said, the more I read, the more I was exposed to different opinions. At the end, I'd throw up my hands and go, well, actually, that's less clear than it was at the start. Now, in your book, Eve sees things in very much in black and white. So she says, for example, the man who had drunken sex, the young man who had drunken sex with Michaela on the first night, basically is a rapist who should be reported, uh, either reported to the college or the story should be made public. And Michaela says ambivalence wasn't a feeling Eve could sympathise with. Is that what you wanted to do with this book, to show that even a situation which looks like it's morally straightforward, here a drunken boy taking advantage, if you can say that, of a drunken girl to have sex with her, that even a situation which, if you put it in simple terms, looks morally straightforward, actually can be a lot more complex than that? That's absolutely what I was trying to do. And then I guess on a kind of bigger, on a broader level, I was also trying to kind of explore that tension that, I do think 
that we need people who think like Eve, who, who are capable of seeing things in black and white terms in society. And I think that if we didn't have those people, then nothing would ever change. Um, I personally am someone who sympathizes a lot more with Michaela in that I think I can become like paralyzed by ambivalence and I do see things as very gray. Um, so I'm not, I'm not even advocating any one approach or the other. I'm just trying to kind of assert that a different approach does exist and that while it can sometimes be helpful to see things in a black and white way, not everybody necessarily always does and that perhaps they're not, um, wrong or morally inferior mm. or seeing things in a more complex way. That there are room for two views on many of these issues. Yeah. So I want to ask you about something else related to this issue of morality, and that's um, the tagline that's used as the, the opening to the blurb on the back of the book. Are you a good person or do you just look like one? And you, again, you've said that there's an idea in philosophy that which I thought was really interesting. I wasn't aware of it. I had, well, I did first year philosophy, no more than that. That yeah. um, most people are more interested in appearing to be good than actually being good themselves. Now, in your book, again, we're not going to go into the particulars, but one character is faced with a moral conundrum. Is it okay? She may not see it as such, but that's how we see it. Mm. Is it ever okay to betray a close friend and to cause her pain if it's for the greater social good? I want to ask you, could you discuss that dilemma in the context of this issue about people being more interested in appearing good than actually being good themselves? Sure. So I think that it goes to a question of, um, so I guess there's sort of two ways, or there's many ways, but two ways that you can look at that kind of conundrum is that you can say, well, consequences matter. So if you do something that benefits a great number of people, then the, that benefit outweighs any harm you cause. And then some people would go even further and say, if you did it, if, if you benefited lots of people for the wrong reasons, like if you benefited lots of people, not because you really deeply cared about them, but because you just wanted attention and you wanted a gold star, then that's fine too, as long as you benefited lots of people. Um, and that is a, um, you know, like that's a very persuasive moral theory. Um, and then there's another way to look at it, which sort of says that, well, no, motives matter and intentions matter. And if you do the right thing, but you do it for selfish reasons, then that kind of changes the moral, I guess, tone or the colour of what you've done. Um, and that's not to say that it's necessarily bad, but it definitely means that it's like less good than if you've done something for altruistic reasons. Um, and I guess that's something that Love and Virtue tries to tease out um, is this idea, I guess it just sort of is trying to prompt people to question whether um, people who do good things, but they only do it for themselves or for attention, whether that's like less good than people who, I guess, more quietly and on a smaller scale benefit the people around them and don't really care about whether or not they're thanked for it or whether they gain anything from it. Diana, thank you so much for talking to me. Congratulations on your fantastic book. All I can hope is that lockdown is now over and that fabulous young writers, emerging writers like you are going to get the opportunity to get out and talk at writers' festivals and talk at literary events about your book and be before a live audience and see the reaction. It's nice to be on a podcast, but nothing will match the joys of being before a live audience and having seeing them respond to you and your book. So I, I wish you many festivals in the years to come. and oh, congratulate you. you on our, an exceptional debut. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.